Well, good morning. My name is Steph Schneider. I'm on the teaching team here. So glad you're here this day after Halloween, hyped up on candy. Uh, first day of November, which is crazy. Um, smack dab in the middle of what I think are the best three months of the year. October to December, favorite three months of the year for me. The weather, the smells, the holidays, um, all the things. I just, I think it's the best. And so I hope that you are soaking up this time. I hope you're soaking up these months. And I hope you're soaking up this study in the Gospel of John. Um, I really hope you're enjoying it. I really hope you're being challenged, as challenged as I am, as encouraged as I am, as you're working your way through it. Um, this week we spent really hunkered down in John chapter 5. We saw Jesus work his third of seven miracles, uh, seven signs that we've been saying he um, uses to point to who he is. So this is the third sign Jesus performs. And then we looked at the aftermath that results from that sign. Um, And week after week, as we've been looking at these miraculous works that Jesus does, we've continued to note the fact that John doesn't refer to them as miracles. He actually calls them signs. Signs that are not intended to be an end in themselves, but that are intended to point, to point us to something bigger, to something better, to something beyond themselves. Signs that are intended to point us to the truth of who Jesus is and why Jesus came. And so a few weeks ago in chapter 2, we saw Jesus turn water to wine at a wedding. And then in chapter 4 last week, we saw Jesus heal an official son who was on the brink of death. And this week, we watched him heal a lame man laying by the pool of Bethesda. And I kind of just want to say from the outset that if it feels like this lecture is mostly saying the same thing that Bishop said last week, or that Paula said the week before that, or that I said the week before that, Um, If it feels like we're kind of like a soundtrack that's playing on repeat, that's because we kind of are. Um, What we're starting to see is that every encounter that Jesus has, every single miracle Jesus works, every single sign John records, they are all serving the same big purpose. They're all making the same big claim. They're all pointing us to the same big truth, the truth of who Jesus is and why Jesus came. And it's almost like John is intentionally bombarding us with this like deluge of pictures, of proofs, of signs, so that by the time we get to the end of this book, we will be so steeped in the person of Jesus. So sure of the purpose of Jesus that we will know without a shadow of a doubt 
that Jesus truly is the long-awaited Son of God who has come to rescue us and reverse the curse of sin and death and bring us life, life now and life forever. Every single week is basically showing us that truth from a different angle. You can kind of think of it, I, I had this thought this week, you can kind of think of it like an instant replay camera, okay? So you all know how those work, like in a football game. You know, you've got a controversial call that's critical to the outcome of the game. And so to ensure that the officials make the right call, you've got the instant replay cam. And the official goes and he buries his head in this hooded camera where they get to watch the same play from different angles, right? So you've got the pylon cam, you've got the view from the left, you've got the view from the right, you've got the view from the top, you've got the view from the bottom. But it's all the same play, right? Just different angles. And the hope is that by seeing the one play from a bunch of different angles, in the end, the official would be able to make the right call about the play, right? Y'all, that is basically what John is doing in this gospel. He's inviting us to bury our faces in this book and to watch Jesus from a bunch of different angles. Same person, same purpose, a bunch of different views. And just like the instant replay cam, the hope is that by seeing Jesus from all these different angles, by the end of the book, you and I and all who came before us and all who will come after us will be able to make the right call about the controversial man named Jesus. The right call that is absolutely critical to the outcome not of a game, but the outcome of our eternity, the outcome of our lives, the right call that Jesus is the Son of God who has come to rescue us from the curse of sin and death and bring us life. And so this morning, as we discuss this chapter, I want us to see it like that. I want, it, want us to just see, us, see it as a slice of the bigger picture, um, giving us just one more angle on the person of Jesus. And for me, the chapter kind of break down, broke down into three main sections. And so first, we've got this demonstration portion in verses 1 through 9. This is where we get the miracle, where we get the sign, um, where we see more of who Jesus is and why he's come by where he goes and by what he does. Um, then we move into this confrontation portion in verses 10 through 18, where Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders because of when he chooses to do um, what he does in the demonstration portion. And then finally, in response to the confrontation from verses 19 through the end of the chapter, we've got the declaration portion where we have Jesus moving from showing who he is, showing why he came, to saying it, to declaring it, um, to claiming it clearly and confidently. And so that's kind of the move that we're going to make 
today. And if you haven't, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to John chapter 5. Let's let the replay camera roll. I'm going to read the first nine verses. John chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is life, and it is power, and it is everything that we need. And so, would you come this morning? Would you come in your power? And would you make it alive to us this morning? Speaking words of hope, speaking words of truth, speaking words of healing that our souls desperately need to hear. Would you come and would you make this time matter in a way that will matter for today, for tomorrow, and for all of eternity? It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Okay, so as this chapter begins, we find Jesus headed to Jerusalem from Galilee. It's the time of one of the Jewish festivals. We aren't sure which one, but regardless, we know it's the time of a feast. And that means all the Jews are headed to Jerusalem, and Jesus is headed there too. And in verse 2, we see that in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda. And surrounding this pool are five covered colonnades, five covered porches. And in these porches, under these coverings, surrounding this pool, we read that there are a multitude of invalids, which is just this like general term for people who are sick or disabled or outwardly, physically broken in some way or another. Okay, so we've got this picture in our minds, right? A pool deck full of broken people, blind, lame, paralyzed on the outside, lonely, outcast, helpless, hopeless, desperate on the inside. And the reason that they are all here is because there's a superstition surrounding this pool. See, at this pool, for whatever reason, from time to time, the water would stir, and the belief had developed somewhere along the way that whenever this happened, whenever the water got stirred, it was likely being stirred by an angel of the Lord. And so if you could be the person, the first person, to figure out how to get your broken body 
down into that stirred water before anybody else beat you out, you would be healed. Now, were the people here genuinely healed by this pool? We really don't know. Um, I mean, certainly people are healed in the Bible from crazier ways than this. Um, but obviously, it's also very possible that this was just a superstition. Maybe there was a placebo effect happening. Maybe the mineral content in the pool had some sort of pain-relieving power or was able to heal some kind of diseases. And Who knows? We really don't know. Um, but what we do know is that this place had become the place for broken and desperate people. The place where broken and desperate people were spending their days. Spending their days lying by this pool, watching for the water to be stirred, and hoping that maybe, just maybe, this would be the day when finally they would be the one who was quick enough, who was strong enough, who was fast enough to get down to the water first. And finally, they would be the one to get the healing that they were desperate for. This is the pool of Bethesda, a pool full of broken, desperate people longing to be healed and looking to water for healing, for hope, and for life. And this is the place that Jesus makes a beehive for. Jesus heads straight to a pool full of broken, desperate, outcast invalids. Don't you just love that about him? Straight for the people who are desperate for hope. Straight to the people who are longing for life. And this tells us something about who he is, doesn't it? What Jesus does, maybe more specifically, where Jesus goes, tells us something about who Jesus is. After we're introduced to the place where Jesus goes, the where, we zoom in a little further to see the person that Jesus goes to, the who. Because within this pool deck full of broken people, Jesus moves toward one specific guy. And honestly, it's a guy that we really don't know that much about. Um, the text doesn't really give us a lot of details about his exact condition, but you can kind of put context clues together and figure out that he at least has some sort of issue with his legs. He's likely lame or partially paralyzed or something similar. Um, and he's been this way for 38 years. 38 years. Can you imagine? Y'all, 38 years is as long as I've been alive. Uh, for my entire lifetime, uh, for reference, this would be since 1985. Since 1985, this man has been broken and confined to life living on a map. And it's possible that for the entirety of those 38 years, this man has also been laying on this mat by this pool, desperately looking for healing, for hope, for life. Yet here he is, 
38 years later, still lame, still broken, still confined to life on a mat, still desperately longing to be healed. Can you imagine how discouraged he must have been at this point? How hopeless, how frustrated, maybe how angry, how exhausted, how empty. To have spent quite possibly 38 years of your life sitting by a pool, waiting for water to stir, hoping that this time you might be the one to be healed. Then to see it be stirred, your heart to stop racing, use all of your might to drag your body down to the water, only to be outrun, only to once again come up empty, and then to have to make the long crawl back, back to your mat, still lying, still laying, still broken, still longing for healing. 38 years of trying and failing. 38 years with nothing to show for his efforts. 38 years of a continual routine that never produced what he hoped, that never brought the healing and the life that he was so desperately longing for. Can you even imagine? And we say, of course we can. Of course we can, right? Because while we may not be suffering from brokenness manifested in physical paralysis of our legs, we are all well acquainted with the reality and the struggle and the pain that comes from brokenness in one way or another, aren't we? Brokenness is the universal human experience. And it has been for nearly all of human history. Um, its roots trace all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way back to that moment when Adam and Eve turned their backs on God, when they chose their way over his way, and decided to look for life apart from God. And as a result, sin entered the world, and brokenness has been the name of the game ever since. Um, there's that song in the Lego movie that says, everything is awesome. Uh, I think this song of humanity since the fall could be titled, Everything is Broken. Everything is Broken. The disease of sin has broken the world and everything and everyone in it at its deepest core. And we see its effects everywhere, don't we? Um, at the Pool of Bethesda, we see its effects on a physical level. The reality that because of sin, we experience physical bodies that do not work as they were intended. Disability, deformity, disease, and a whole list of other diagnoses invade our lives, infect us with pain and suffering and struggle. Some of us in this room are well acquainted with this 
effect of the fall. Either because we are personally experiencing the pain and the suffering that comes from physical bodies that aren't as they were intended, or because somebody we dearly love is experiencing this kind of brokenness. Because of sin, we experience physical bodies that do not work as they were intended, and we see it at the pool of Bethesda. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Certainly, we are well aware that brokenness and its effects caused by sin extend far beyond just our physical bodies. It touches so many different parts of us. I wonder where you know its reality in your own life. The the symptoms of brokenness vary widely. Um, Maybe for you, it's a struggle with mental health, anxiety, depression, or something else that's plagued you for years now. Maybe it's relational, a marriage that's in shambles, a child that's estranged, a friendship that's severed. Maybe you know its effects by the guilt and the shame that you carry day after day over something that you've done or something that's been done to you. Uh, Or perhaps you know it from anger and bitterness that eats you up, or jealousy, or envy that gnaws at your soul. Maybe you see your brokenness and your desperation for acceptance and approval. You're exhausted from people pleasing, but you really don't know how to stop. Maybe you see it in your obsession with your body, or success, or your kid's success. I mean, I could go on and on and on. The list just keeps going. We are a broken people, and the symptoms of our brokenness vary widely. But the source is all the same. Sin is the source. It's the root cause. It's the disease underneath all of our brokenness. Sin has separated us from God, the one who is all hope, all life, all joy, and it has left us broken at our deepest core, lying on a mat, desperate for healing, desperate for hope, desperate for life, and looking for it in all the wrong places. This man was looking for hope and healing and life in a pool. And if we're honest, we've all got our own pools, don't we? We've all got our own places, our own people, our own things that we are looking to for life. Places where we are looking for hope. Places that we are chasing day after day, convinced that they will eventually deliver on the hope and the healing and the wholeness and the life that we are so desperately looking for. Wonder what the pools are in your life. And I wonder how they're doing, delivering to you what it is that you're looking for. I wonder if your experience with your pool isn't very different from this man's experience with his. 
day after day dragging your broken body down to the edge of your pool, desperately looking for it to give you what you long for, always coming up empty, and then making the long crawl back at the end of the day, still broken, still longing for healing, still looking for life more than you found. This man had been doing that for possibly 38 years. What about you? How many years has it been for you? How many years have you lived with a continual routine that never produces what you hope, that never brings the healing and the life that you're desperately longing for? Y'all, in one way or another, we are this man on that. He is a picture of the universal human condition. But the amazing news of this story is that this is the guy that Jesus zeroes in on. This is the guy that Jesus moves towards. Look at verse 6. It tells us that Jesus sees him. Not only does he see him, but he knows him. He knew that he'd already been there a long time. And rather than avoid him, as probably many people were prone to do, Jesus moves toward him. This man does not move toward Jesus. Jesus moves towards him, which is always the move of the gospel. Romans tells us that none of us seeks God. None of us move towards Jesus. None of us move towards God, but wonder of wonder, God is a God who moves towards and he does that in the person of Jesus. And we see that demonstrated here as Jesus sees and knows and moves toward this broken and desperate man. Not just with kindness and compassion and love, but with a simple but life-changing question. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed. Why do you think Jesus asked him that question? That'd be a fun question to throw around in your groups. Lots of people think lots of different things. I've got my thoughts. I'd be curious to hear yours. Why would Jesus ask this man if he wants to be healed? We really don't know for sure. Um, but what we do know is that rather than answer his question, um, this man starts to tell him all, just all the reasons why he can't be, right? Look at verse 7. He says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. In other words, it really doesn't matter if I want to be healed. Because the reality is, I can't be. I've got nobody to help me into the water first. And try as I may, on my own, I'm never going to win the foot race. Healing for me, he's saying, is impossible. And he would be right. He would be right. If the hope of his healing was ultimately to be found in that pool. Right? Like if the hope of being healed is in fact dependent on him, 
and his own strength and his own ability to get his own self down to that pool, then this guy is 100% correct. It is impossible. He cannot be healed. But what Jesus is about to show him is that healing isn't found in a pool, is it? It is found in a person. And that person is here. And that person is standing right in front of him. And that person is ready to heal and ready to save. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. It goes on to say, let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness Jesus requires is what? That you feel your need of him. This man knows his need. That is like the one thing he's got going for him. He admits his utter inability to achieve the healing and the restoration and the life that he longs for. And this is all the fitness that Jesus requires to move in and begin to do a saving work in this man's life. A saving work not accomplished by stirred water, but simply by a spoken word. A spoken word by the Savior of the world. Jesus says to him in verse 8, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. And rising by the power of Jesus in an obedience of faith, this man picks up his bed and he walks. Simply by a word spoken by Jesus, this man experiences complete healing of his legs. He has been freed from hopelessness and helplessness that resulted from his condition, freed from the mat that confined him for the past 38 years, freed for fullness of life that is greater than he had ever known. Can you even imagine the joy that this man experiences as he picks up his mat, this mat that had held him captive for the last 38 years and carries it in his arms? As he walks out of that pool deck, his life never to be the same again. Can you imagine? Um, but that isn't where his story with Jesus ends. Um, you probably noticed that because shortly after Jesus heals him, Jesus goes and finds him at the temple. And he says this to him He says, See, you are well. Go and sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. See you are well. See what I have done for you. The healing, the restoration, the freedom, the life. See you are well. Now go and sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. What in the world could be worse than 38 years of paralysis? we might ask ourselves. And the answer is an eternity 
apart from God. What Jesus is essentially saying here is that even though this, this man's legs have been made well, he is still in need of healing. He needs a deeper healing. A healing not just of his broken, paralyzed legs, but a healing of his broken, paralyzed heart. A broken and paralyzed heart that will ultimately doom him to destruction, to eternity apart from God, to hell. Um, unless there is someone who can provide a rescue. Unless there is someone who can provide a remedy. Unless there is someone who can restore his broken heart and raise him to walk in new life. Unless there is someone who can provide freedom, not just from the symptoms of brokenness, but from the source of brokenness. Freedom from his sin. And guess what? That someone was here. Jesus says, look, look at what I have done for you. The healing, the restoration, the freedom, the life. See, you are well. I have healed your broken, paralyzed legs. And what I've come to do, or what I've done for your legs, I have come to do for your heart. I have come to bring freedom from the source. Freedom from the sin. This miraculous healing at the pool, Jesus is using to point him and to point us to a greater miracle, to the deeper healing that Jesus came to bring this man on the mat and to you and to me and to all of humanity. Y'all, Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Son of God, left heaven, put on flesh, made a beeline for a world full of invalids, a world full of lost and broken people, paralyzed by the deadly and eternally damning disease of sin, a disease that has separated us from God and that has utterly and has left us utterly helpless to fix ourselves. And he did it. He came in order that he might rescue us from the curse, the curse of sin and death, and restore us to right relationship with God and bring us life and healing and restoration and rest. That is who he is. And that is why he came. And we see it demonstrated in this healing but that's not where this saga ends, because right after this miraculous healing, at the end of verse 9, we get this one tiny little detail slid in there. At the end, second part of verse 9, look at it with me. Now that day, the healing day, was the Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and very quickly, what we start to see is that that tiny little detail isn't actually very tiny. Um, it actually turns out to be a very big deal, one that leads to the significant confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. Um, and so Jesus has miraculously healed 
This man from 38 years of brokenness, the man has gotten up, he's picked up his mat, he's walked for the first time in 38 years, and somewhere along the way, either on his way or when he arrives, he is met by the Jewish religious leaders, and they are outraged. Why are they outraged? Because he is carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And according to their man-made law, according to them, according to the regulations that they had added to God's law, this was a total violation. It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed, they say to him in verse 10. And it's really like such a heartbreaking scene, isn't it? Like this broken man has been healed He's been restored after 38 years, and he gets up, and he rises in faith, and he heads straight for the temple of God, where he can finally be allowed to worship. And as he arrives, he is met not with rejoicing over his restored condition, not with a word of welcome into the temple, not with celebration, but he is met with confrontation and, and he is met with condemnation for none other than the religious leaders themselves. Today is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to carry your bed on the Sabbath. To which this man responds, the man who healed me, that man, said to me, take up your bed and walk. And again, what we expect the religious leaders to say next is, wait. What? The man who healed you? Somebody healed you from your paralysis? Who is the man that healed you? This is what they should be asking, right? But that's not what they're asking, is it? Rather than asking who healed you, they ask him, who told you to pick up your bed and walk? Not who healed your paralyzed legs after 38 years, but who broke our rule? Talk about mixed up priorities. And really, the biggest irony of the whole thing is that if you look back in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, the main focus of the Sabbath is not about rules at all. But instead, it's about rest. It's about restoration, and it's about remembering the God who delivers. What had just happened to this man on the mat is exactly what Sabbath was about. Exactly what Sabbath was about. But for the Jewish religious leaders, Sabbath wasn't about that. It wasn't about life. It was about law. It wasn't about rest. It wasn't about restoration. It wasn't about remembering. It was about rules, their rules, a system of rules that they had created to earn favor with God. And somewhere wrapped up in that system was really their hope and their healing and their identity and their life, which all of a sudden doesn't sound all that different than the man on the map, does it? His hope was wrapped up in water. Theirs was wrapped up in works. 
his identity was wrapped up in his inability. He was the sick man, the lame man, the paralyzed, the man who couldn't get to the pool first. Theirs was wrapped up in their perceived ability. Um, they were the religious leaders, the good guys, the one who knew the scriptures more than anybody, the, the guys who could keep all the rules. His brokenness was manifested in his legs. Theirs was manifested in their legalism. His deliverance was set on the pool. Theirs was grounded in performance. And they, just like him, had to be flat out exhausted. The religious leaders in this man on the map aren't as different as they appear on the outside. But there is one stark difference that bubbles to the surface as the story unfolds. And that is that while the man on the mat is able to see and to admit his need and his utter inability to do anything about his condition on his own, the religious leaders simply are not. Their perceived ability to keep the law, to earn their own righteousness, to be good, was completely preventing them from seeing their own need. And ultimately, it was keeping them not only from coming to Jesus for the rescue and the restoration and the rest that they were desperate for, but it was also keeping them from rejoicing in the miracle of grace and restoration and life that had been brought to this man. Do you see this tendency in yourself? This, the tendency to place your hope in your performance, your works, your law-keeping, rather than in Jesus alone. Do you, do I, sometimes struggle to rejoice at God's grace extended to broken people around us? These religious leaders were desperate, were as desperate for Jesus as the man on the mat. They just didn't know it. They had completely missed it. They completely missed the point of Sabbath, and they were completely missing Jesus, which is why Jesus comes to them. And he comes to them opposing their systems and their self-sufficiency and offering them another way. This time, not just by demonstrating who he is, but by declaring it. Look at verse 17. Jesus says in response to their outrage over him healing on the Sabbath, he says, My father is working until now, and I am working. He does not deny that he is working on the Sabbath. But he instead declares boldly why he can. See, there was only one person who the Jewish leaders agreed could work on the Sabbath, and that person was God. And so when Jesus says, my father is working and I am working, what he is saying is, I am allowed to work on the Sabbath because I am the son of God. He is claiming deity, and the religious leaders know it, and they're ready to kill him for it. Look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
um, our notes pointed out that, you know, up until this point, there really hasn't been any confrontation surrounding Jesus. But this chapter is really the turning point. Um, from here on out, we're going to see that at the same time that Jesus is drawing people to himself, he is also stirring up conflict between himself and the religious leaders. Conflict that continues to be rooted in his claims to be God. He claims it in verse 17, and then for the next 20 verses, for the rest of the chapter, he will build on this claim. He claims authority and deity. He warns of judgment. He lays out witness after witness after witness after witness to testify to the truth of his claim to be God. Um, it's a clear and it's a convincing declaration built on so much evidence that Jesus lays out right in front of these religious leaders that they might realize the truth of who he is and why he'd come. But they refuse to come to him, you guys. They will not receive him. And instead, they set out to kill him. And this is the section of John that almost every commentator agrees right here during this, or as a result of this demonstration, as a result of this declaration, right here is where Jesus signs his death warrant. From here on out, for the rest of his ministry, there will be an escalating manhunt, rising opposition to Jesus and his claims that will eventually end with him hanging on a cross. The cross, which will be his greatest demonstration, and his clearest declaration of who he is and why he came. The cross where he will allow his body to be broken for our brokenness. The cross where he will become sin for our sin. The cross where he will experience darkness and devastation of separation from God in your place and in my place. But do you remember Jesus' final words on the cross? What does he say right before he dies? Three words. It is finished. It is finished. What is finished? All the work that God had given him to do. All the work that was required to rescue humanity, to rescue you, to rescue me from sin and death and make us right with God. All the work required to heal our deepest brokenness and bring us life. The work that you and I will attempt to do unless we are willing to accept what Jesus has done for us. Because of his work, see, we can rest from ours. This is the true Sabbath rest. This is what the religious leaders were missing. This is what Sabbath is all about. Do you see that Sabbath isn't just about physical rest and restoration? It's deeper than that. It's better than that. It is soul rest. It is rest from working for my redemption, for my salvation, for my being made right with God. It is rest from working for my identity, my security, my comfort, my satisfaction, my meaning, my life. Rest that is grounded in the finished work of Jesus. A rest that not only restores, but a rest that reorients us 
A rest that reminds us of a greater rest, a greater day, a day that is to come for all the people of God, the day when he will return and bring the pervasive, the permanent, the plentiful restoration and healing and life that this miracle and all the miracles in the gospel are simply pointing to. The day when everything wrong is made right. The day when everything broken is fixed. The day when everything sad comes untrue. The day when we hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This day is the day that we're longing for. This day is the day that we're living for. This is the day that Jesus' first coming anticipates. And this is the day that his second coming will inaugurate. A day of restoration and rest, and life, full, free. And we say together, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, so many places that we long for healing. So many places that we feel broken, empty, desperate for life. Would your word this morning bring us a reminder, bring us hope that you have come to heal our deepest brokenness. You have come to bring us eternal life. And there is coming a day when you will set all the wrong things right, when you will fix all the broken things, when you will wipe away every tear, and we will live with you in unhindered, perfect, beautiful intimacy forever. We long for that day, and until then, keep us close to you. Keep us clinging to you. We love you, and it is in the name of your beautiful Son that we pray. Amen.